speak to you in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. These are the words emblazoned upon the walls of this chapel so that whenever we leave this space, as we exit, these are the final words that we see. For those who remember worshiping in the old chapel, they were emblazoned at the front of the church so that whenever one sat or kneeled or stood to pray, those words would be in front of you. It was almost as if as we worshiped, our eyes would bounce off these words that were always in front of us in the chapel, sending us back out the door to carry on the mission of God. And today we hear Jesus sending out the 70, just as he sent out the 12 in the chapter prior, sending them out into the world to preach the gospel. Now I admit, I am less troubled by this aspect of Luke chapter 10, the going and the sending, than this other deep worry that I have in this passage. That is, I think myself and I think a lot of us here have wrestled with this idea of going and of being sent by God into the world to do God's work. Whether you are in seminary or whether your loved one is in seminary, these are questions that we have wrestled with. I'm struggling with a much more basic question from this passage. That is, what if the 70 came to us? What if we were on the receiving end of this message of the 70? See, I'm, I'm troubled by this because I suspect that if I lived in one of those villages, or if we were one of those villages and one of the 70 came to us, two of the 70, technically, I'd probably find them obnoxious. <laughs> I mean, we have to assume that they're teaching what Jesus has taught up to this point in Luke chapter 10. Now, up to this point in Luke, Jesus has utterly dismissed his own family as they sit outside of where he's teaching. They want to come in, and he said, they're not my mother and my brothers. You around me here, you are my mother and my brothers. So he's utterly dismissed his own family. He's welcomed prostitutes. He's told his followers to recklessly give away their money without regard for how it gets spent on the other side. He doesn't tell them invest in a nonprofit that helps people along the way. He says, just give it away. And not just that, he calls down woes upon the rich and the full, blessing the hungry and the poor. And when I hear that, and I place myself within the long stream of the communion of saints in the past, and I look at the wealth that Christians have had in the past, or in the church Catholic today, I can't help but think that woe is on me. I'm rich in that scheme of things. The only excuse I have is that I'm not as wealthy as that other guy. And we're just in chapter 10. <laughs> Luke's not even half over. We haven't even gotten into the rest of the New Testament, the book of James. Oh, goodness. It isn't that Jesus says, woe to you who misuse your wealth. He just says, woe to the rich. And the 70, the 70 are embodying this message. Jesus tells them, don't carry anything with you. Don't bring an extra bag. Don't bring an extra cloak. 
I mean, let's think about this. How many of y'all over here go to the butterfly house? I've got, I've got two sons in the butterfly house. Yeah, right. You used to, right? Every morning when I take my sons to the butterfly house, we all carry bags. In fact, we're like burdened with the bags that we're carrying. And I guarantee you, our eight-month-old, we carry an extra set of clothes. <laughs> but it's just how bizarre and strange these people must have seemed. I think I would have found them obnoxious. And I think most of us would have found them that way. Disturbing. And perhaps in that most Episcopal of epithets, we might have found them indecent. <laughs> what kind of religion is it, St. Augustine once wondered, what kind of religion is it that asks us to love our enemies and hate our families? What indeed? It's a question that's beguiled the Christian tradition from its very inception. It didn't take long for theologians and pastors, pastors to start sanding off the rough edges of Jesus' teaching. The earliest we have is Clement of Alexandria, who told his flock that what Jesus cares about when it comes to poverty and riches is the virtues of poverty. So whether you are rich or poor, you are to develop the virtues of humility, of renunciation, of generosity. It's not poverty of actual possessions. And we have to admit, as Protestants, we might be on the Catholic side, but we're Protestants, this instinct kind of gets some steroids in the course of the Protestant Reformation, when works righteousness becomes a heresy, basically. Grace not just frees us from the law, but from works righteousness. Good works, the struggle of good works themselves. All sorts of Protestant debates about this, but we can't deny that when we look at Protestant thinkers back from Luther up until Reinhold Niebuhr more recently, these really difficult passages, these difficult teachings of Jesus become this aspiration for Christians. Not something we expect everyone to actually follow, but aspirations. And the Protestant Reformation, it coincides with this rising middle class in Europe, which is all too relieved that this wealth that's beginning to accumulate doesn't need to interfere with our salvation. And that is true in our day more even than theirs. But I can just sort of hear Paul in the back of my head nagging, nagging, saying, what? Just because you're saved by grace doesn't take away any of these commandments. Nowhere does Paul say that because we're saved by grace, the difficult teachings of Jesus go away. What kind of religion is it that asks us to love our enemies and to hate our families, to recklessly sell our possessions? I can't stand in front of you here as a preacher and resolve this question. I can't resolve this question for you because I haven't resolved it for me. I haven't sold my own possessions. And I must admit, I've heard many a mediocre sermon by otherwise excellent preachers trying to resolve this issue. And even more have I heard excellent theologians writing mediocre treatises on how to resolve this issue. But we can't help but read the New Testament and come away with the sense that 
Jesus means what he says. It just comes up too often for us to think it can all be allegorized away. So we are only left. We are only left with our struggle. With our struggle of assessing the potential mediocrity of our own Christianity. Because Jesus means what he says. And the 70 would probably be obnoxious to most of us. But I can say this. I can say that just because we wrestle with the mediocrity of our own Christianity, that doesn't, that doesn't rescue us from the commandment to go. So the commandment to go remains for us, to go into all the world and to preach the gospel amid our own working through of our faith with fear and trembling. As we work through our faith in fear and trembling, we invite others into the same journey because we have been compelled by Jesus. Even if we find these teachings of Jesus utterly impractical, there's still some part of us that has been drawn into what Jesus is saying and desires to follow in just how he has called us. And so, when it comes to the sending of the 70, we sit oddly and strangely in two places at the same time. As residents in a rather consumerist modern culture, we sit as those who feel unsettled by this message, as those who feel it would all be a bit indecent to do this. And we also sit as the seven. We are also those called to go, and amid our own struggles, to go into the world and to preach the gospel, because we know that despite ourselves, this is the news that transforms the world. Amen.